Hello and welcome to the Mind Springs podcast with me, Alastair Appleton. I hope you enjoy what you hear, and if you'd like to find out more about us, then visit mind-springs.org. So there's nothing intrinsically wrong with smartphones and the internet. In fact, I use them all the time. And in a lot of, for example, my teacher is in America, so one of my Buddhist teaching comes through the internet, so it has enormous benefit but what, I'm, what I'd like to draw our attention to, or our mindfulness to, is some of the mechanisms of what happens when we go onto the internet. And why that feeling, feeling slightly ashamed that we're kind of sucked in is actually misplaced. Because we are not at fault here. This is not our moral weakness that we get sucked into the internet. Because the internet is developing in a very interesting way, but in a way that makes it almost inevitable that what just happened, happens. There are, for example, in the food industry, there are food substances that are called hyperpalatable. So Pringles is a good example. (laughs) Hyperpalatable foods are foods that are almost irresistible to the human palate in the sense that All organic animals have certain predispositions towards saltiness and sweetness. And so you get these foodstuffs that are almost irresistible. Once you eat one, you have to eat a whole packet. And these people spend billions and billions of pounds developing these precisely so you can't resist them. The exact same thing happens with many internet phenomena. And I'd like to suggest that social media is perhaps one of the most powerful hyper-palatable stimulants. Because social media is designed to press some very specific buttons in our brains. So I'm going to go a bit neuroscience here, so excuse me if I'm trying to explain this. Um, One of the most powerful uh, neurotransmitters in the brain is dopamine. I'm sure you've come across this. So dopamine is the go-get molecule. Uh, there's a very famous, wonderful um, neuroscientist called Yak Pansep, who's been doing ex- um, experiments since the 70s about the emotional building blocks of the brain. And he describes dopamine, he says dopamine, when it's working properly, is the sort of feeling that you get when you see a Labrador let loose in a field that it's not been in before. It's like, oh, oh, oh. That is dopamine in its most positive sense. It's like, let's go out into the world and explore. Let's find new things. Let's find food. Let's find love. Let's find sex. Let's find drink. It's extremely important for all living beings to get out there and experience things. And it's the excitement of the new, the the novelty orientation. And this is deeply programmed into the human brain. We are, it's almost irresistible the desire to go to something new, something shiny, flashy, tasty, sexy. And in fact, the dopamine is paired in the human brain with another system, which is the, so the dopamine is the seeking system, and the other system is the sort of enjoying system. So dopamine rules the seeking system, and opioids 
rule the enjoying system. So you, you get your you get your food or your drink or you find something new or you find a new partner, and then you enjoy having them. So there's the wanting, and then there's the enjoying. But interestingly, dopamine is stronger than opioids. It will always trump enjoying. We are primed, necessarily for evolutionary reasons, we're primed to always want to get more. If there's a chance that there's something else that we haven't got, then it's in our evolutionary interest to get it and store it. Because who knows what might happen later on. So we're always being driven. The dopamine is, one of, is the most powerful brain transmitter. And the internet, the way the internet has developed, is the perfect catnip for do- dopamine. It will always draw us in because there is an infinite, almost infinite amount of new, exciting, fresh stuff. And so the, the desire for the dopamine hit, and dopamine, for example, is what's behind cocaine. That's exactly what happens when you have cocaine, the addictive quality of cocaine. So they always say, oh, oh look, I found out what the capital of uh, Upper Volta is. It's Wagadougou. And then that's going to take me to like, oh, there's amazing pictures of Wagadougou. And look at those amazing Muslim things. And that's taking me to decide about ISIS. And oh my God, what happens if ISIS rule the world? And then, so there's this constant chain of, of connections driven by dopamine. If you add into that mix sex and love and a sense of self, it's curtains. Because those things, sex, love, being loved and loving, and being approved of, having our sense of self enhanced and loved and cherished, these are absolutely irresistible. And when you look at something like Facebook, or Twitter, or Snapchat, or Instagram, these are all designed to harness that desire to be loved, find partners, to be constantly stimulated, to be approved of, in infinite measure. So they're tailored exactly to, to push that dopamine button. So that's, that's the reason why it's not our fault that we get kind of caught up in these things. So that's good, so we can get rid of the guilt. But it's very important to understand what's happening, that that's what's happening when we spend six hours on Facebook or on YouTube. (laughs) Unfortunately, the the puzzle gets a little more complicated because alongside dopamine, we are also driven by cortisol, which is the stress hormone. So dopamine is getting what we want, and cortisol is getting what we don't want. So it's the, it's the brain chemistry that's like fear and panic. And interestingly, interestingly Pankser makes a distinction between fear and panic. So fear, he discovered in all these experiments that he's been doing, fear is the feeling of being attacked. So if someone's attacking you, it's all the kind of flight and fight, and like, oh, your hackles go up and you want to fight. This is the, the, the response of fear. This is cortisol. Cortisol and adrenaline do this to us. Panic is also driven by cortisol, but it's actually a quite different system. Fear is the, is the response to being attacked. Panic is the response of being abandoned. 
So the classic example is a, a bird falls out of a nest or a cub loses its mother and it starts to squeal and squeak as loud as possible. That is the panic response. It's like, find me, find me, find me, find me. And that, uh, that fear, it's not the same as the attack fear, it's a different set of, uh, sort of uh, procedures. It's also driven by cortisol, though. And what happens with panic is that at a certain point, the animal realises that it's making so much noise, it's making itself a target, and it goes silent. And so that when panic collapses, that's what Panksepp calls grief or depression. So we've been abandoned, we squeal, and then we stop squealing. And this is almost as powerful as dopamine. The systems of attachment and love that we all have from childhood on totally drives our being in the world. So a sense of being abandoned lies behind when we put up a picture of our new house or our new the meal that we had and nobody likes it. Not one thumbs up. <laughs> and that's a trivial, trivial example, but actually that is the, exactly the same system. That is panic. It's the sense of not being loved, not being wanted. And it's heartbreaking. It's one of the, the, the heartbreaking thing about being human. And so when you have the dopamine, the endless drive of dopamine, and then the endless fear of abandonment and panic or attack if you're being trolled or bullied, this makes the, the internet doubly, not toxic, that's wrong, doubly vulnerable-making. It makes us very kind of vulnerable. Unfortunately, there's a, third, there's a third element in the mix which is perhaps the most worrying of all, and this is dissociation. So we have desire, and interestingly, this maps almost exactly into the Buddhist, Buddhist psychology, Buddhism. Buddhist psychology, most of our suffering comes from desire, fear or aversion, and from ignorance or dissociation, not seeing. And this third part of not seeing is the bit that I'm really interested in, because dissociation, do you want, does anyone know dissociation? So it's a, it's a specialised word from psychotherapy or from, from um, psychology. It's the state of zoning out. When something traumatic happens, when you just something traumatic and you forget about it, you black out, you can't remember it. This is the most classic example of dissociation. So someone is raped or someone's attacked and they just black out. And then they come back in the police cell later on. They can't remember anything about it. This is, this is the classic psychological definition of dissociation. But also, there's a lot of very interesting work around uh, dissociation being a much more widespread phenomenon in the sense that when. Um, when you're in a room with a ticking clock, and after about three seconds you stop hearing the ticking clock, that's also dissociation. It's a sort of a carving out of our perception, so it's like a sort of like a shuttering out of certain things that are not so important or are too painful. So this is uh, what they call dissociation. And what, is what I find really fascinating about the internet is that it thrives or is fueled by dissociation. And by that I mean it's the particular phenomena that happens, and you may have, that was a very brief example, you may have experienced it just then, but the particular phenomena that happens when you know that you shouldn't really be spending this much time on YouTube, or that you shouldn't be like looking at that 19th 
link on Twitter, or that you, and you know, there are hundreds of, you know, shouldn't be playing Candy Crush, or you shouldn't be doing Angry Birds, or you shouldn't be playing online poker, or you shouldn't be looking at sexy pictures late at night. But you do it. It's the carving out of your perception so that you're just in this very narrow field of existence. So basically you kind of tune out all of annoying reality and then you're just in this pleasantly dissociated but ultimately not very healthy state. And this can go on for decades. We can live like this gradually shaving more and more stuff out of the picture to keep ourselves in this safe little box. And this, becomes, this really comes alive when you look at some of the literature around gaming. There's an amazing book. I can't remember the name of the author, but I can put together some notes or something. But there's an amazing book about the gaming industry in America. And this woman did a lot of research into, apparently, the fruit machines. on mm-hmm. bandits. Now... Uh, supply 75% of all income in gambling in America. So in, in Las Vegas, the kind of the crap table and all that stuff, that's just a little bit of window dressing. All the money comes from fruit machines. And fruit machines, again, there's, there's a billion dollar industry and there's massive amounts of research done to create the machine, this is the phrase they use, to create a machine that plays the player to extinction. This is the phrase they use. The, the game, the machine must make the player play to extinction, which just means that they've, they've run out of money. And what's interesting about research is that gambling in that instance is not about winning. The people who gamble in that way, and sometimes it's not unusual for people to gamble for eight hours at a stretch, sometimes for 12. The people who gamble in that way are not interested in winning. In fact, when they have a big ching, 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 and the money comes up, that's really annoying because it stops the trance. It stops the mind meld with the machine. What they're paying all the money for is not the chance of winning, but it's to zone out and be married to the machine. And that's true of actually quite a lot of addictive behaviours. But it's not, a, it's not actually about the obvious thing, like looking at porn or you know, winning money or buying too many foods or uh, uh, buying show and online shopping or eating too much. The food, the shopping, the sex are not the important thing. What's important is the dissociation. What's the important is those few hours where you don't have to be grown up, you don't have to deal with the world, real objects, real people, real time, real space. You're in this incredibly one-dimensional, zoned-out space. And this, I think, is the most worrying aspect of of the internet, particularly when it comes to well-being and our future as human beings in the world. Um, Because that sense of withdrawal, of self-isolating, is ever-increasing and massively problematic. It makes us it makes it almost impossible for us to flourish as beings in a world, and it makes it almost impossible for us to love other people properly, because other people simply become either obstacles to us getting into that zone, or at a slightly 
a more relaxed state, they become simply resources or threats to our well-being. We're no longer, we don't feel that we're in a shared world. We've created this kind of optimized internet world where everything is kind of shaped to please us. And this is, I think, profoundly worrying. Because when we have, when we go online and there's always an app that will sort things out for us, there's always something where we can text rather than talk, so we can dump our boyfriend or our girlfriend by text, so we don't actually have to see them. Yeah, yeah you're dumped. <laughs> this kind of sort of safety blanket of virtuality, of representations rather than reality, becomes incredibly cocoon-like, but is actually, it kills us. There's no vitality in it. There's no energy in it. And so that's that sense of being cut off from the vitality of life, I think, is, is super toxic. And you know, it worries me a lot. There's a lot of dreadful examples of people who just disappear into, into the internet and we never see them again. Thank you for listening. And please do join us again for more podcasts from MindSprings. You can find out more about us and our work at mind-springs.org. That's mind-springs.org.